Chapter 15 The Fear of Death Facing a firing squad is a pretty good test, I guess, of your theology of death. I didn't exactly pass the test with flying colors. Perhaps it all just happened too quickly, without any warning. There had been a revolt of the prisoners at Camp 5 in Norilsk, and when troops were called in to put down the revolt, they divided the prisoners up into small groups and marched them off. I was rounded up in a group of thirty. One of the first groups herded out of the camp and led down to a sand pit about a mile away. We had no idea what disciplinary measures would be taken against us, but we never for a moment thought we would see the soldiers line up five yards in front of us with rifles ready, waiting only for the command to shoot. The command was given, the rifles raised, cocked on another command, and leveled at our heads. For a moment, as if in a dream, none of us really understood what was happening. Then the realization that we were actually looking into gun barrels awaiting only the command to fire came crashing into my consciousness with a force that stopped everything. My stomach turned once and went numb. My heart stopped. I'm sure I forgot to breathe. I couldn't move a muscle in my body. My mind went blank. The first thought I actually remember thinking was a question. Is this the end, Lord? I know I started the act of contrition, but I remember the sensation of realizing that another part of me could not understand the words I was mumbling. The other part of me focused on the fact that in a fraction of a second I would stand before God, dumbfounded and unprepared, unable in the suddenness of my confusion and total terror to feel sorry for my sins, numbed into absolute inactivity, unable so much as to elicit a simple act of faith in the God I had learned to trust implicitly in every action of every day, let alone think with anticipation of meeting him face to face at last. I can still remember vividly my awareness of the moment and the second fear that gripped me when I realized I was incapable of performing any Christian act to redeem myself, paralyzed and terrified and yet conscious of what I should be doing, indeed was trying to do by rotely reciting the act of contrition without comprehension or meaning, in the last moment of life left to me before the veil parted and I would stand before God. I have no idea how long that one moment lasted. Suddenly there was a shot in the distance, shouts, and a group of officers dashed out to stop our execution. All I know is that when the moment passed, my heart was pounding, every nerve and muscle shaking, my knees weak and trembling, my mind once again able to follow the sequence of events in a coherent way. When we were finally marched off again, I tried to figure out what had happened to me. Often enough, during the years of prison, of interrogations, of life in the camps, I had lived with a thought of death. On more than one occasion I had been told I would be shot, and I knew those threats were truly meant. I had seen men die around me of starvation or illness or sometimes just out of lack of wanting to live any longer. I had faced death in my mind time and time again and helped others in their final moments, had lived with the talk and presence of death. I had thought about it and reflected on it, had no fear of it, sometimes looked forward to it. What was there then about this moment that so terrified me, so completely unstrung me and made me incapable of functioning, of praying, even of thinking? Was it just the suddenness, the surprise that had betrayed me? That had to be part of it. Then, too, there was the physical fear. Everyone, sometime in his life, has experienced the effects of a sudden fright, a bad scare, a close call in an accident, perhaps, or an unexpected fall, maybe just a sudden, loud, strange noise. Animal instinct takes over at such moments. The mind goes blank, the body reacts, muscles tense, 
the heart quickens, the stomach tightens, nerves tingle. And when the moment passes, if it passes without physical contact or bodily harm, a reaction sets in as the body grows limp. Those are simply the physical signs of fear, and it is not surprising that the body should fear injury or even death. I cannot be sure, perhaps I will never know for certain until the moment of death approaches again, but I suspect that most of my panic, before the firing squad in that sand pit outside Norilsk, was due to such animal instinct in the face of a sudden and totally unexpected physical danger. For the thought of death itself does not terrify me, had not terrified me all through the war or prison or the prison camps. Death must come to all men at the end of this earthly life, but it is not therefore evil. If the good news of Christianity is anything, it is this, that death has no hidden terror, has no mystery, is not something man must fear. It is not the end of life, of the soul, of the person. Christ's death on Calvary was not in itself the central act of salvation, but his death and resurrection. It was the resurrection that completed his victory over sin and death, the heritage of man's original sin that made a redeemer and redemption necessary. This was the good news of salvation, meant to remove mankind's last doubts, last fears about the nature of death. For the resurrection was a fact, a fact as certain and as sure as death itself, and it meant that death held no victory over men, that life beyond death is a certainty and not just a human hope or fable. This was the fact that made new men of his once fearful disciples. This was the good news they preached. The little sermons recorded in the Acts of the Apostles center on this theme, God has raised Christ up from the dead, he has risen, and of that fact we are witnesses. From the fall of Adam, God had promised a Redeemer. From the day death came into the world, God has promised a conqueror of death. And the good news to be preached throughout the world was that the Redeemer had come, death had been conquered. This is the joy of Easter, this is the peace it brings. O oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe, he said to the two disciples on their way to Emmaus, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and so entered into his glory? The victory of God's anointed one, the Messiah, was to be over the kingdom of death and of sin, but how could he triumph unless he first suffered death and then broke its chains? Easter was the victory. Easter was the good news the apostles were sent to preach to the ends of the earth. And the joy of Easter is the joy of that good news, while the peace of Easter is the peace that comes from knowing that the thing men had feared most, the end of life, annihilation, death, really holds no fear at all. That is not a Christian fable, it is a fact, and the proof of it is the resurrection. If Christ be not risen, said St. Paul to his Christians, then your faith is in vain. You cannot be a Christian and doubt that fact. Christ's coming upon earth, his taking on of human flesh, had no purpose if it was not to die and then to triumph over death. He was not just a religious leader, a great teacher of ethics and morals. He was the promised one, the Savior, the Messiah. His death and resurrection are the central facts not just of Christianity, but of all human history. Men lived in expectation of his coming and his victory over death until at last he came, and since then the good news of his victory over death has been proclaimed everywhere and has sustained in peace and joy those who have believed. Perhaps nowhere on earth is the contrast between those who believe and those who do not believe more striking than it is in the Soviet Union. 
Death is very nearly a taboo subject in the communist milieu. In an ideology of atheistic materialism, death is obviously the end of everything for a man. It is a special tragedy for the young, who are cut off from life just as they are beginning to live. It is tragic for those in middle age, who have reached the peak of their powers. For the old, who have lived a full life, it may come as a release, but it is no less an end to life and therefore tragic. A man might survive in the memory of his loved ones, a famous man's reputation might keep his name alive somewhat longer than most, but for the rest, death meant not only the end of this life, but of all existence. A dedicated communist could work to build a better society for his heirs, for those who came after him, but he himself could not survive. Men are exhorted to take pride in their work, to build a better tomorrow for all mankind, but this can be their only hope. Marx and Lenin laid down the foundation of the doctrine. Today's communists should consider it a privilege and an honor to be the pioneers of a new social order, a grandiose revolutionary tide sweeping onto worldwide communism. Life, therefore, requires a total sacrifice of self to the great cause of building communism, and no thought of death should be allowed to detract from this purpose. As a result, practical measures were taken in the Soviet Union to avoid mentioning anything about death. When death occurs, of course, it affects the immediate family and relatives and friends as well. If a party functionary or some distinguished worker dies, there will be some display and eulogies of his achievements. A bouquet or two of flowers with slogans attached mark the grave as a sign of distinction and honor. Perhaps a band accompanies the funeral cortege and party colleagues pay their last respects by attending or speaking at the graveside. The ordinary citizen, however, dies and is buried nearly unnoticed. Funerals generally take place after work so that those who wish to attend may do so. Work cannot be interrupted because of someone's burial. The ordinary coffin consists of a few planks held together in the form of a trough, covered around with a cloth like gauze dyed red. That is all. The cost of such a coffin is at most five rubles. The truck used to transport the coffin to the cemetery is loaned free of charge by the enterprise where the comrade worked, and it, too, is available only in the hours after work, when the factory five-year plan will not be interrupted by the use of a truck for some other purpose, such as a funeral. That the truck had spent the day hauling gravel, men, dirt, and other materials mattered little to the driver or the people who would use it after hours as a hearse. A few strokes of a broom sufficed to clean the dirt from the platform, the tailboards would be lowered, and the truck would be ready for the funeral. No pomp accompanied the funeral procession, a small group of the immediate family, together with a few friends, followed the slow-moving truck in silence and deep sorrow. Side streets were assigned to be used for funerals, which must skirt busy intersections or main thoroughfares so that other citizens would not be unnecessarily distracted or affected by the sight of a funeral procession. The less people witness such sad scenes, said officials, the better. For communism lays stress on the joys of life, on man's progress, not on sorrow and despair. And yet the passers-by along the line of march were touched. Many stopped and stood with heads uncovered to show their sympathy for the dead and for the grieving family. Others actually knelt on the sidewalk and made the sign of the cross, remaining in that posture until the procession passed, for the thought of death touches human nature much too closely. There has always been a strain of mysticism in Russia on this subject, as the works of Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and other great Russian writers clearly show. Even among non-believers, the strain of mysticism remains to this day. 
It is quite common, especially in the towns and villages, for the anniversaries of the death of loved ones to be strictly observed. On the day of the anniversary, family and friends visit the grave at the cemetery and decorate it again with flowers. Christians will also place upon the grave blessed medals or icons, and try, if possible, to have the grave blessed again by a priest on the day of the anniversary. Soviet law, however, now forbids priests to bless graves at the cemetery, so the people ask that the office of the dead be sung at the church for the dear one whose anniversary they celebrate. At home, relatives and friends are invited to a meal especially prepared for the occasion. Rolls of all kinds are baked stuffed with meat or fish or cheese or vegetables such as cabbage, carrots, and onions. Big pancakes are served with sour cream, butter, or some jam if it can be gotten. Then, a big bowl of cooked rice with raisins and honey is placed in the center of the table at the end of the meal. Each guest takes a spoonful of the honeyed rice as he mentions the name of the deceased person whose anniversary is being celebrated, expressing at the same time his sympathy for the family and recalling the good deeds of the loved one. It is a sort of religious ceremony, reliving in spirit the presence of the departed in the company of family, friends, and relatives. Tears are shed, the day of burial is relived in words and memories. In this way, a solidarity of the living with the dead is upheld, paying tribute in the fullest manner possible to those who have died. The Tuesday after the Sunday after Easter, Low Sunday, is a special day for the commemoration of the dead. Crowds flock to the cemeteries, bearing food and flowers, almost as if for a picnic. The graves are cleaned and decorated, and then the family sits down to a meal at the graveside. Passers-by are invited to join the meal or to drink a toast. On that day, too, Christians used to ask the priest to sing a special requiem service called the Panakita at the graveside. There were times during my later years in Norilsk when I was kept busy from early morning to late at night, going from grave to grave to sing these services for families. This, too, is now forbidden, and indeed the Komsomol organizations and the League of Militant Atheists crusade constantly in the press to have these annual observances banned on the grounds that they lead to public disorder and drunkenness. But the observances continue, and it is a rare sight to witness how on that day everyone comes to the cemetery to pay homage to the dead. Communists as well as non-communists come to show their respects, not only to their own departed relatives, but to those of friends and neighbors as well, sharing with them their memories and feelings of grief, finding in all this some consolation and some bond of union with them in expressions of tender and moving love. One could sense in all this, among these simple ordinary people, communists and non-communists alike, a desire somehow to preserve a link with those who have died, to keep their memories alive at least, to cling to some small hope that death was not the end of man's existence. It was an instinct deep in the Russian character and tradition that all the learned assertions of the would-be experts on the question of death in the press, on radio, and on TV could not shake. The people sensed deeply what life meant to them, and they could not bring themselves to believe that death was the end of all. The family, at least, must remember. I think, for example, of the dear old babushka, grandmother, of the family with whom I lived for six years in Abakan before my final return to the United States. She loved to talk with me because I would listen. Somewhat forgetful, she would tell me the experiences of her 76 years over and over each day. She often talked of her departed husband, how she had visited him in prison, how he suffered being sick, how she did everything she could for him till the very day of his death. 
Her greatest sorrow came from the fact that her husband had died in prison, away from home and family. She considered that a great tragedy, not just for him, but for the family. She often told me how sorry she felt for me, alone in the Soviet Union without a family, and told me how she prayed I might someday return to the United States and die in my own country with my family and relatives close by. She thought that dying in a strange country would be a terrible thing, to die without a loved one at your bedside, the greatest tragedy. The fear of death, the fact of death, affects all men, and yet the strain of mysticism about death that runs so deep in Russian literature and folk customs seems to heighten the poignancy of this universal phenomenon even more. It is to these fears that the good news of Christianity speaks. I found that especially among the simple people, the good people, for whom the desire or the expectation of an afterlife was not a fantasy or an illusion, as they so often heard it described by communist propagandists. It was more than a belief. It was something real, something that all the assertions of the learned materialists, the proofs of science, and classroom demonstrations could not shake. Death to them was not an end, but a beginning, a passage into eternal life. They took joy in the fact that they would one day be together with their loved ones again and sometimes longed to be free of the sorrows of this life and to be at peace at last with God forever. Salvation, these simple people would say, is not measured in terms of how well we make out in what we do here on earth. It depends ultimately on our belief in God and of our abandonment in Him. In failure or in success, in health or sickness, in sorrow or joy, man must turn to God, must trust in God, believing in Him more each day, loving Him more each day, in preparation for a future life with Him. There was something beautiful in their simplicity, something that all the theologians and books of theology could not match in their approach to death. That I should find it in the Soviet Union startled me at first. It taught me much, and coupled with my own experience, it made me think and think deeply about the meaning of death for a Christian. What is there to fear in death? It means no more and no less than the end of our testing period here on earth. It is a return, a going home to the God and Father who first created us. It is not the end of life. The fact of the resurrection proves that beyond a doubt. There is sorrow in our separation from family and friends, no doubt, the human sorrow of which no one need feel ashamed. And yet, as St. Paul says, we Christians do not grieve as ones who have no hope. We believe in the resurrection, as we say in our profession of faith, the creed, and in the life of the world to come. Death is not a tragedy in our belief, but only an ordained passage from this life to the next. Death may be feared by those who do not believe, who have no hope. It may be feared by those whose faith in Christ and the resurrection is weak, or those who fear to meet God face to face because of what they have done or how they have lived in this period of testing we call life on earth. Men may legitimately worry, too, about those they leave behind. Christians have always prayed to be delivered from a sudden and unprovided death. But death itself is not a thing we fear. It is a homecoming, the return of the prodigal son, perhaps, to the welcoming arms of a loving father. We expect it, as all men must, but we expect it in confidence and even joy, buoyed up by our faith in Christ and his victory over death. Christ has risen, and our faith is not in vain. The resurrection is a fact, a fact of recorded human history and of what the theologians call salvation history. So death for us is not an enemy, a thing to be dreaded, a word we prefer not to think about or play down as do the communists. 
We think and speak about it not as an end to everything, but as the end of our probation. We can anticipate it daily and even eagerly because of our faith. We can learn to yearn for it, prepare ourselves for it, and embrace it gladly in joy and in peace when at last we are called home to our heavenly inheritance. This we believe. This essentially is what it means to be a Christian, one who believes in Christ, the promised Redeemer and victor over sin and death. Thank you.